Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you turn your mind to a different war for a moment, the American Civil War, there was a moment when a correspondent of President Abraham Lincoln's wrote to him and asked him this question. He said, do you think God is on your side? Do you think God is on the side of the Union? Is God fighting your battles for you? And Abraham Lincoln, who was a wise man, responded with these words. He wrote back and said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And I think in answering the question the way that he does, Lincoln strikes a humble note and also one that that plays well to modern ears. Because I don't know about you, but if people these days go around saying things like, well, God is on our side, God is on our side, it seems presumptuous, it seems haughty to talk that way. I much prefer Lincoln's way of addressing the question. It's not that God is on our side, it's that we want to strive to be on God's side. And yet for Joshua's people, this is all very different. Where we see a distinction in these ideas, they really didn't see this. The will of God and the welfare of his people were inseparable for them. Of course God was on their side, and of course they were on God's side. Those two things went together in the minds of Israel. There was no either or. There was no choosing between the two. Both things had to be true. And while that's a hard thing for us sometimes to think about, to think, you know, God is on our side, there is a lesson for us to learn in coming to see things the way that they saw them. There's something for us to appreciate about our relationship to God that we can only learn by seeing the way that they were on God's side and God was on their side too. So in what we're about to read, we're going to see three ways that this relationship is impacted by the idea that that God is on their side. We're going to see how Israel achieves an inevitable victory, and that victory is going to lead to an inescapable judgment for their enemies, the Amorites. And God's actions throughout this battle will fill the people with an indescribable wonder. So an inevitable victory, an inescapable judgment and an indescribable wonder. So we turn to our text, chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, we read these words. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, 
While they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel." It's the word of the Lord. The battle begins with the realization amongst the Amorites that the Gibeonites, by allying themselves with Israel, have shifted the balance of power. The fall of Ai wasn't a big deal because that was a small town. But to have Gibeon fall into the hands of the Israelites, that's a larger city. And so the kings decide they need to rise up. They need to strike. They need to attack Israel now. And they decide what they're going to do is they're going to fall on Gibeon and seize Gibeon back before the Israelites can take possession of it. And so the Gibeonites, these new deceitful allies, cry out for help. They cry out to Israel, and Joshua answers. And the army immediately mobilizes and goes on the march. The attack from the Amorites occurs The Gibeonites appeal for help, and Joshua answers. Read at the beginning of our text, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, all the mighty men of valor, and they waste no time. They move quickly. God gives them encouragement as they go. He says to Joshua, do not fear. I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so... They move quickly, unexpectedly. They attack the enemy when the enemy is unprepared. And at the end of our text, we learn that the Lord fought for Israel. Well, how did he fight for Israel? Well, first, he throws the enemy into a panic. Immediately, when Joshua's army appears, they're they're not expected. But, you know, a lot of times, attacks begin by surprise, but you're able to organize your defenses and mount a defense and fight back. That's not what happens here. Joshua appears unexpectedly. They attack, and it throws the people into a panic. The Amorites cannot regroup. So God, by creating this panic, is fighting for Israel. He prevents them from rallying. But that's not all that he does. As a result of those actions, because they cannot mount a defense, the battle is basically won. The battle is over. The Amorites are in flight, but God's not done fighting. We're told that as they flee, God sends giant stones from heaven, hailstones rain down upon them. It was only a few days ago that I woke up in the middle of of a hailstorm. 
And when you wake up in the middle of a hailstorm, as you're working through a text where God kills people by raining hail down on them, it's especially vivid. You, you put yourself in the scene a little bit. And as those hailstones were clattering against my window, I thought what that must have been like to be unprotected from much larger stones raining down as you're fleeing. And the carnage is severe. It's always the case in battle that the most casualties inflicted are inflicted after one side collapses. It's during the retreat that those uh, casualties are inflicted. But now, with the hailstones raining down on them, the text says more were killed by the stones from heaven than were killed by the edge of the sword, which is saying something because a lot were killed by the edge of the sword. So God is fighting for Israel not just by creating panic in the hearts of their enemies, but by literally mowing those enemies down before them. As they're chasing those enemies, they're seeing the stones, crushing them as they go. And then at that moment, Joshua says these amazing words. He speaks to the sun and commands it to stand still, and the moon to arrest its motion, and God does this. God makes this so. He stops the sun. He denies them the cover of darkness that they're longing for to end the battle. So the day goes on and on and on and refuses to stop. The later commentators, especially during the Enlightenment era, coming back to a passage like this, what you tend to do is you sort of look at these events and you look for uh, meteorological ways of explaining what happened. So that while it may seem like there was some sort of miraculous intervention, it turns out this was just a really meteorologically interesting day where a lot of strange things happened. And uh, there, was, there was hailstones, and then uh, there was what seemed like this really long day. But the way that the author portrays these things, we're clearly meant to see them as miraculous interventions. But he says there was no day like this before or after. I mean, something remarkable happened here. Like God stopped time from flowing. God stopped the sun and the moon so that the battle could go on and on and on. And when we say the battle, we mean the part of the battle devoted to slaughter. So this defeat would be inescapably conclusive, that it would have no end until the killing was truly done. This is how God fought for his people. The author says there was never a time like this before or after. He appeals to another historical source. He says, isn't it written down? If you don't believe me, go look there. Like these things happened. These things happened, and they were miraculous. They were God's doing. This demonstrates that at this great battle, the one who gained the victory was clearly the God of Israel, not the army. It wasn't because Joshua was so quick to mobilize. It wasn't because they struck at just the right moment and had the right strategy. This, once again, was God winning Israel's victories for them. As he's done throughout this book in a variety of different ways, Never the same way. Jericho isn't defeated this way. A different way, equally miraculous. Ai defeated differently. Each time God delivers his victory in a unique way. It's not the formula. 
It's not the motions that you go through that guarantee the victory, the outcome. It's the God you serve who does it and does it in all sorts of different ways, all of which reinforce how amazing he is. This was an inevitable victory. There could be no question. Once God had said, not a man will stand against you, there was no way that their enemies could triumph over them. For Israel, it was an inevitable victory, but for the Amorites, it was an inescapable judgment. And as it went on and on, the inescapability of it became more and more pronounced, more and more obvious. As we've seen As we work through the book of Joshua, there is this interesting dynamic where the same action that fulfills a promise to Israel executes a judgment on the Amorites. And the same thing as God giving the land to the people he's promised to, there is also a penalty, a punishment that is being inflicted at the same time on the Canaanites. This isn't a unique situation to the book of Joshua. The Old Testament prophets will often pull the curtain back and suggest to us that there is a hand of God working in the affairs of nations so that when nation rises up against nation, you can see blessings being given by God in victory and also punishments, judgments being given out in defeat. Here, we're seeing blessings given to Israel through victory, but later in the Old Testament, we will see punishment. We will see curses inflicted on Israel by unbelieving nations who were told God rised up. He, 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 He built them up in order to do this. So we see a hand of God in the affairs of men that we're not often conscious of. In this particular instance, this particular inflicting of judgment, I think the inescapability of judgment is really the key. It is the thing here that stands out the most. Because this is a victory that is followed up by so many divine actions that make it conclusive, that make it inescapable. After the victory, the hailstones inflict more casualty than the sword. After the victory, the sun stands still to prolong the slaughter. To the Amorites, a clear message is being delivered. What the Amorites are seeing is, it's not Israel you're fighting against, it's Yahweh. It's not the people of God that you're fighting against, it is God himself who is set against you. And against him, you cannot triumph. You cannot win. Because when you fight Yahweh, judgment is inescapable. I'm probably not the best person to get uh, advice on strategy and tactics from, but I did a little digging. I did a little research, and there is an American military doctrine manual from the 1920s called Tactics, the Practical Art of Leading Troops in War. And it explains something that I think is interesting and gives us an insight into what's happening in Joshua 10. And it has to do with uh, the particular significance of the sun standing still. When you're withdrawing, when you're retreating, you want to do it under the cover of darkness. Under the cover of darkness. 
This is uh, the words of P.S. Bond and E.H. Crouch in their book, Tactics. The most favorable condition for a withdrawal is darkness. This affords the withdrawing troops almost complete protection. Also, it will often be possible to effect the withdrawal secretly. Even if it becomes known to the enemy, a pursuit in the dark will usually be ineffective. A withdrawal by daylight should be attempted only when such a course appears unavoidable. You withdraw in darkness because in darkness you can get away with it. In darkness you can disappear. In darkness you can retreat. And even if the enemy discovers that that's what you're doing and tries to stop you, they can't see you. It's so much easier to slip away in the cover of darkness. Darkness conceals. In the cover of darkness you can get away with things that would never be possible in broad daylight. John speaks this way in John 3. We read these words. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those are Christ's words in John chapter 3, 19 through 21. Now, in our text, in Joshua 10, God is literally denying the Amorites the cover of darkness. Their enemy, their, their army rather, has been so battered, has been forced to withdraw so far that their only hope is for night to come. The only way for them to escape with, with an army at all intact is for the sun to set so that they can scurry away and escape in the darkness. That's the significance of Joshua asking for what he asks. He's asking God to give him a victory so complete that it doesn't, the day doesn't stop until the victory is won utterly, until this army is smashed completely, inescapably. And that is literally what happens. But figuratively, there's a lesson here too. Figuratively, this reminds us that all those who war against God will lose the cover of darkness. All of us in our struggle against God, against his claims on our lives, all of us love the darkness. We love darkness rather than light, we're told, because our deeds are evil. We don't want the the light that shines, that exposes everything. Because we imagine that what is hidden will never be known. And that we'll only have to account for what can be seen. What we're able to hide, we won't have to answer for. The Bible says that at the judgment, the light will expose everything. There will be no concealment. There will be no escape. So that in this day that was like no day before it and no day after, we see a picture of what judgment is truly like. An inescapable judgment is truly like a a, a light from which nothing can be concealed, where there is no corner of darkness into which we can retreat and hide, where everything is known. Everything is known and everything is judged. And if we put ourselves in the place of Israel, there's something 
comforting and exhilarating about the idea of winning such a victory. I mean, if we put ourselves in the place of the Amorites, those who war against God, there's something that fills us with dread and should, realizing that there is no way to struggle against God and prevail, that the light will expose everything. The Lord fought for Israel. He denied their enemies the cover of darkness. In 1588, England was besieged by a much greater power, Spain. Spain was, at that time, a little bit like what the United States has been for a while, the world's greatest and only superpower. Spain, because of its empire in the New World, because of its power in Europe, got to do basically whatever Spain wanted within reason. And what Spain wanted in 1588 was finally to suppress the English menace, this little Protestant island that was sowing discord, this little Protestant island that was supporting the Dutch in their opposition to Spain. It needed to be stopped. And so King Philip put together the largest fleet uh, known to history, the Spanish Armada. He equipped these great galleons. He filled them with a great army to set out and invade England. England was not a first-rate power at this time. It relied on its isolation in order to protect it. It had no great army. It had basically a scrappy navy in those days, certainly nothing that could stand up to what was coming to them, so that it seemed defeat was inevitable. People would fight, certainly, because they had to fight. They had no other option, but they didn't have much prospect for success. So the Spanish Armada sailed, and as you know, on their first pass through the English Channel, they engaged the uh, English ships, and there were some skirmishes back and forth that were inconclusive, and so the Armada circled around once they had passed to come back and basically attack again. And as they were circling around, a great wind began to blow. Possibly one of the most... Uh, northernmost hurricanes ever to uh, blow comes and, and wipes out the Spanish Armada, scatters the fleet so that many of the ships are lost. A few of them make it to land and those men are captured or slaughtered. And a few, a few ships of this great armada manage to make it home. They're destroyed not by the English army, not by the English navy. They're destroyed by the wind, by the storm. And the people at this deliverance were jubilant. Uh, the queen had medals struck in honor of this great victory. And the Latin inscription on the medals read, Flavit Yahweh et dissipate sunt. Yahweh blew with his winds and they were scattered. God, the Lord, blew with his winds and they were scattered. This is based on a text from Job 4, and it signifies that the people of England did not see the victory as their own, but one that God had won on their behalf. So that later historians would come to refer to this wind that blew, this storm, as the Protestant wind that had fought against the Spanish Armada. 
we look back at stuff like that and it seems a little nationalistic, a little jingoistic, you know, oh, you think God was fighting your battles for you. God's sending hurricanes to protect your nation. Ha ha ha. That seems very unlikely. And what we miss, what we miss is the impulse that, that originally prompted people to speak this way. Like we imagine that it was some sense of pride, haughtiness, entitlement that led people to speak about this as a Protestant wind, to say that God had blown and their enemies were scattered. But it wasn't pride, it was awe. It was awe. It was the realization that we should have lost. And yet we just won the greatest victory ever. A victory far beyond our grasp was won by God for us. And they celebrate that fact. That's what they're celebrating when they say these things. An indescribable wonder that their eyes have beheld. God fighting for them. That's the sense of the final verse in our passage. When the author of Joshua records these things, he says in in what is verse 14, which is the last one that you have in the order of worship. He says, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. We've already seen that the author of Joshua is appealing to other historical sources, and he alludes to things occasionally that, that are still going on in his own day. So he'll say, The Gibeonites are servants as they are to this day. And he'll say, these things happened, and if you don't believe me, look in this other history book, this book of Jeshur, so we know these are things being written down after the fact. So the people they were written for originally are not the people who witnessed the events. They're people later on who needed to be reminded of those things. They needed to hear that the Lord fought for Israel because they were in circumstances that might lead them to forget They were in circumstances that might lead them to worry. They needed to be reminded that where they were, they had not gotten to on their own strength. And they needed to be reminded that they didn't have to rely on their own strength to sustain them. That the Lord had fought for Israel, and he still does. He still does. And the Lord fought for you, too. And you need to hear it as well. The Lord fought for you to bring you out of darkness and into the light. And this should be a comfort for us. Because if he fought for us to do that, he will keep fighting for us. The victory is inevitable. The victory that we yearn for, the freedom from sin that we yearn for, that victory will be completed. God will not leave that work undone. When we forget that the Lord fights for us, we start relying on ourselves too much, giving ourselves too much credit. And when things turn against us, if we've forgotten that the Lord fights for us, easily we succumb to despair. We lose hope. It should be an encouragement, a comfort to us to know that the Lord fights for us. And it's also an encouragement For those we love. Because there are people we love who do not love God as we yearn for them to love him. Who do not know him as we yearn for them to know him. 
And if the Lord fights for us, then we know that we can share his grace with the ones we love and we can pray for their deliverance, pray that they will receive what we have received, having confidence that it is God's power that saves, not ours. It's not my power to persuade or my eloquence. And it's not your power to hear rightly that makes the difference. It's God, by the power of his spirit, who wins these victories so that we can be encouraged, encouraged to pray for those whom we love, to share Christ's grace with them, believing that the Lord fights for us. If we forget that he fights for us in these things, we let our shortcomings silence us. We're afraid we're going to do it wrong, say it the wrong way, unconvincingly. If we forget that the Lord fights for us, then we start having hope only for the hopeful cases. The people who seem worth praying for, the ones who seem to be tottering on the edge already. And it's easy to give up on the people that, I mean, would literally take the Holy Spirit to convert. We forget that everybody literally takes the Holy Spirit to convert. We can be encouraged knowing the Lord fights for us. Listen to the words of Paul when he was speaking about his commission to King Agrippa, when he was explaining what happened to him on the Damascus Road, what mission he was entrusted with. Listen to the way that he describes it. This is what he was told. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He was being delivered from his own people and from the Gentiles and sent to them in order to open their eyes, to bring them from darkness into light, because the God who fights our battles desires to win great victories. He likes it. He likes to cover himself in glory. He wants to win impossible victories. He wants to bring to himself not just those who are teetering on the brink, but the Saul's of the world who are fighting against him. He wants to be victorious, and he wants us to trust in his power to win victories. Lincoln said, my greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. I think Lincoln was right when he said those words. God is always right. And as surely as there's an inescapable judgment for those who war against God, there is an inevitable victory for those who are at peace with him. But when we see those victories sometimes, we react the way that the apostles did in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm by speaking to it. These are men who already believed in him. And yet when they saw the true nature of his power, they said to themselves, what manner of man is this? What kind of guy is this? 
Like they thought they knew him. They trusted in him. They, their faith was in him. But when they saw the, the curtain drawn back and they saw a little bit of the power of Christ, they didn't know who he was anymore. They couldn't imagine power like that. And we're in the same boat, if you forgive the expression. We serve a God that we trust in and we have faith in. And occasionally the corner is peeled back and we see what he's truly capable of. And like, whoa, wait a second. What kind of a God do we serve? The kind who can make the sun keep shining for as long as he wants. The kind for whom nothing is impossible. The kind who seeks to bring glory to himself in the world that he's made and the people that he's made. That's the kind of God he is. Wonder is what he fills us with. When we glimpse the power of God, we're filled with awe, filled with wonder. And wonder is the mindset of worship. Wonder is the wavelength of doxology. When you see the works of Christ for what they are, you discover your part in them. And wonder is what you feel. Wonder. A wonder that cannot be contained in words, but it can be prompted by them. So that when you hear these words, the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord fought for Israel. Let your heart be filled with wonder. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.